are willing to do things because it's going to help their neighbors, I think we'll win out. We'll win out not because of a government, not even because of our leaders, but because as a people we've had a vision and we've worked for it and we've seen it through. Can you guess what I read inauguration as? Yes, because you put it in the group chat earlier I did. today. But please tell the listeners how you read it. Uh, Iguana Nation. Every single time. Iguana Nation. And I love the fact that we have like a presidential inauguration. I don't know why. Even for Trump. Like I went. I enjoyed myself because I hung out with a guy dressed up as weed, giving out candy. It was great. I booed him. I put on. I wouldn't take dress. candy from a guy dressed like weed. Look, I had a mimosa and I was drunk because I was sad he was coming into office. However, I think the fact that for Biden's uh, Justin Timberlake is going to be singing and I'm Fall praying that he sings uh, bye bye bye. Like <laughs> that would be my idol. Bye bye Biden. Yes. Bye Don. Like, I love it. But in the end, it's still Iguana Nation when I read it. I am not going to make a Jews or Lizards joke. I really want to. (laughs) Hold it back. Hold it in. But I'm not going to. Today's episode of Late History. Alana is Jewish. And Haley can't read. I really want to, but I'm not going to do it. Oh, God. I want to so bad. I'm not going to do it. I also can't spell it. I truly still spell it as, I spell it Iguana, and then go back and being like, how did I spell this incorrectly? Or copy and paste is your best friend during research. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History. The good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. I'm here with Lexi. Lexi, what's the highest level of politician you'd want to be? I guess mayor of a very liberal city. It would have to be very liberal to elect you. Yes. But I could also be, like, president of, like, an organization. Does that count? If I was president of, I don't know, Dog Lovers of America, for example. It's a different kind of political power, sure. Okay. I'm also joined by Haley. Haley, what's the highest level of politician you'd want to be married to? Ooh, I would love... For Robert to go back to the DOT and then like do it correctly because um, he worked in like uh, the secretary's office and they did nothing so I would like him to actually implement the ideas he had and he also likes trains so I'll get behind that so you'd want to be married to the secretary of transportation it's what he wants and I'm behind him for I it I support it I he also wants. like trains I genuinely love riding public transit And I'm Alana, and I've now fled the city where I live for fear of terrorist attacks twice in one month. I think the funniest thing is that they don't do this anymore, but our our university, because it is the George Washington University, used to call orientation inauguration. Inauguration. Colonial inauguration. Yeah, these buttholes, first off, changed it. And, like, I'm all for getting rid of the Colonials mascot. I did a project on it. Screw that mascot. Why can't we keep the word inauguration? It's hilarious. It's It's funny. It's hippo inauguration. Hi. Like, that would be so cute. 
Um, yes. Also, no matter what our mascot is, that mascot can get inaugurated. Um, we could be the river horse inauguration. Oh, can we be Portuguese water dogs and the German shepherds? Just have oh both God, just of all them? White House. No, we're the White House dogs, and it's every <gasps> White House dog ever. <laughs> yes. All dog breeds are now the mascot of GW. But I just think it's funny. And guess what? I I follow Washington and Jefferson College on Instagram because I almost went there. But then, long story, didn't go there because it's in Pennsylvania and I wanted to get out of here. But they stole it. Now they call their orientation inauguration. So I think think GW should take it back. But now they just call it orientation. Like lame ass people. Did y'all go to the last inauguration? Or I went to the, inaug- the GW inaugural ball. I yeah, went the to the ball. ball. I did not go to the inauguration. Um, my Maybe. mom came to town for the Women's March. So I, I went to March. Virginia and I had fondue. And then the next morning I awoke and I walked three blocks from my sorority house to the National Mall and partook in the Women's March. Yes. So did so I-, I wanted to see the difference. I like had a lot of anxiety about going to the inauguration just one because I really hated Donald Trump. I think we, I can say that for all of us. Like, I just, wait, wait, what? So we all went to the inaugural ball, right? Yes. Yeah. Back it up. I think we need to explain something. When GW hosts the inaugural ball, it's not the inaugural ball you see on the news. No. It is just GW students. The tickets are very expensive, around $150. And you have to buy them in September or October or you're not getting into the inauguration. Um, The inaugural ball, I'm sorry. And so- in picture this, it's October 2016. You're a young woman going to college at the, you know, university that is the closest to the White House that has this tradition of the inaugural ball. And you're like, oh, fucking shit. I'm going to go to the inaugural ball for the first female president. Yep. So you buy that fucking yep. ticket because yep. you don't even care if you, you, it doesn't matter if you like Hillary or not. You're like, I am going to be at that ball for the first woman to be president. Like I, that was on going to the Nagar ball was on my pros list because I'm that basic human who always wanted to be a princess. And I thought this is my chance to be at a ball. And then even got a ticket for my friend because she went to school in Los Angeles. And also my mom was just like, Christmas gift, get a second ticket. Worst case, like your sister will go. This was my Christmas gift was to go to the ball. Like my parents got me two tickets. had a woman as president in this country but what if i told you you might be wrong i know exactly what you're talking about because i saw it on drunk history but i love this story i love this story so much lexi please take it away thank you this is the story of the first woman to be the president of the united states of america Edith Bowling Galt Wilson was born on October 15th, 1872 in Wytheville, I believe I'm saying it correctly, but Virginia, which side note makes her 99 years, 11 months, and 19 days older than my dad. She was one of the 11 siblings of an aristocratic family, and at 15, she was sent to study music at the Martha Washington College. A little bit later, flash forward to her 20s. While she's visiting her sister, who is a married grown-up in Washington, D.C. She meets Norman Galt, 
a jeweler and the man who would become her first husband. The pair marry in 1896 when she's 24. The couple have a son in 1903, but unfortunately he dies in infancy. And in 1904, her husband gifts her a car. And some sources suggest that she was the first woman in the District of Columbia to drive a car in the city, although some sources claim it was Alice Roosevelt. It's also very possible they both got cars around the same time. In 1908, her husband died unexpectedly and left Edith in charge of the business he had inherited from his family. This inheritance also included the business's debts. Now in control of a jewelry business, but herself having little business experience, Edith made the smart decision and hired a trusted manager to oversee the company and pull it out of debt. Big brain. Edith, now a widow, was introduced to President Woodrow Wilson, a recent widower. Perhaps bonding over grief, they became fast friends. When friendship grew to love, Woodrow proposed. Rumors spread like wildfire in the district with gossip speculating Edith and Woodrow actually met before his first wife passed away and that their romance began as an affair. Some even speculated that Edith might have been behind the death of Woodrow's first wife, but actually she died of kidney disease, so that's not likely. Despite the controversy, the couple was married in 1915. Despite the objections of White House staffers, Edith sat in on meetings and provided support during Woodrow's re-election campaign. Unheard of at the time, when women were still often discouraged from political participation. Then, America entered World War I. Being first lady during World War I was not an easy task. Edith traveled with her husband to visit the front lines, making them the first president and first lady to travel abroad as a couple while in office. She worked hard to support him as the pressure on his role increased. During this time, Edith advocated for meatless Mondays and other resource-saving efforts. She became the first first lady to christen warships. She volunteered with the American Red Cross. She recruited Washington's elite wives to participate in the war effort, purchasing war bonds and sewing for the soldiers. And to free up their White House groundskeepers for military service, Edith and Woodrow brought a flock of sheep to the White House lawn and let them graze upon the grass. These fluffy little living lawnmowers also provided an added benefit, producing wool that could be auctioned off to support the war effort, because who doesn't want to pay an exorbitant amount of money for wool that was raised on the White House lawn? We should still do that. That should be a thing. I'm obsessed with that idea. Hey, Joe, I have an idea for you. Save gas on lawnmowers if you just have sheep. That's true. That's true. I don't want to like get rid of anyone's job though. So can we make the current groundskeepers be the sheep caretakers? It also sounds like we could have great kebab. Oh, I was thinking more like they'd be like regarded highly. Yes, but then they die of natural causes. That's true. Although then you get like old lamb meat, not like, like you get like mutton. You don't get like. Mutton sounds great too. Woodrow also relied on Edith for assistance with paperwork, teaching her his personal encryption system so that she could decode messages for him, and allowing her to stamp his signature on documents. So he literally had made a stamp that was his signature with ink, and she could just stamp his signature on things whenever she needed to. But this was great for him because it allowed him to take all these incoming messages about World War I, and he didn't have to decode them all himself. And he loved having encoded messages from his different departments. So this was, this was brilliant. This was a good idea for him. In 1918, the couple attended the Paris Peace Conference together. Edith was not an official delegate and technically was not allowed to be present at the peace talks. So this woman, she sat behind a curtain 
and secretly listened into all the conversations and anything she wanted to have said, she was just like, hey, Woodrow, um, I was hearing that conversation before lunch. I'm thinking you go in and say this, this, and that after lunch. Okay, cool. So basically she was there, but she wasn't, which is, it's fabulous, right? In 1919, a stroke left Woodrow partially paralyzed. Uh, sources vary on exactly how paralyzed he was, but the Consensus seems to be that he could not really use the left side of his body, but the right side of his body was functioning, and this basically made him really, really tired and really, really sick. Edith restricted access to her husband, permitting only family, doctors, and his closest servants to see him. And Woodrow's doctors, supposedly, according to Edith, suggested that his resignation at such a pivotal time would disrupt national unity, so he had to stay president despite his condition. And, you know, any other president, had they gone through this, would have probably resigned just for medical reasons. But because of this war effort and the fact that the war had just ended and, you know, the nation was rebuilding, they thought it made the most sense not to have him resign. So rather than abandon a nation at such a vital moment, Edith worked to assure that Woodrow's administration could continue to function. She began to complete routine presidential activities in Woodrow's place and assisted him in signing documents. She even posed with him for photographs, assisting him to look healthy in the public eye. There's a really famous photograph where he's kind of leaning on her and she's standing on his left side and holding a piece of paper and holding his hand steady so he can sign it. And that was staged to make him look much healthier than he was as a way of showing the people that their president was a-okay. You know, back in the day, photos apparently said a lot, but now we know that photos can be faked. So take that with what you will. The official White House website claims Edith never took complete control from her husband and that she never made any major decisions for the nation. They claim her main function was as a filter, reading documents and making sure only the most pressing matters reached her husband and allowing uh, officials from other departments to take care of less important matters related to their departments. But some historians speculate the contrary. Some suggest that it was not Woodrow who signed the prohibition into law, but was actually Edith, which makes sense given that the movement advocating for prohibition was supported widely by women. And if she signed that into law, what else did she sign into law? We'll never know because Edith restricted access so much And she would take the papers in there and she would sit with Woodrow just like she did before he got sick and use his encryption system and sign his name. The amount of control he had in that conversation, we don't know. We we have no clue how many decisions were his, how many were hers, or maybe they just worked together as a really good team. And it's kind of lost to history, the fact that they collaborated and were both running the nation, which would be pretty cool too. In 1926, the Democratic Party briefly considered Edith as a vice presidential candidate. Can you imagine how different our country might look if a woman was vice president in the 1920s? Like that, I just, I, she didn't get the nomination and they moved on to other candidates, but. I'm going to put my whole microphone in my mouth at that. It's just fabulous. It's fabulous. Um, She was very involved in the party, uh, especially after Woodrow's death. She got super involved in the party. So that's fabulous. Like the fact that she was politically active on her own, I think says a lot. Like she wasn't just one of those like, you know, political wives who just kind of goes along. She, she really had her own role. In 1934, Edith sold her jewelry business to her employees. So it became an employee-owned jewelry business, which is pretty cool. And then in 1939, she published an autobiography, becoming the first first lady to write and publish an autobiography. When FDR decided to ask Congress to declare war in 1941, he brought Edith with him. 
posing her as a symbolic representation of the nation's effort in the First World War. And I don't know if that helped him. I don't know if that's why Congress was like, okay, but she was there when he gave that famous speech and that's pretty cool for her too. Edith passed away on December 28th, 1961. Fun fact, December 28th is Woodrow's birthday. And that was the same year that Edith was asked to participate in JFK's inauguration and she rode in the parade and sat on stage with his family. And she even had dinner with Jackie. So that's pretty cool. I've said that's pretty cool a lot, but like this whole thing's pretty cool. The home where Edith was born is now a museum. It is one of only eight historic sites dedicated to sharing the story of a first lady in America. Additionally, the home where Edith and Woodrow lived after he left office is part of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and she donated that home and all its contents and all of his papers to the National Historic Trust, and also the Library of Congress now has the papers if you need them. I don't know why, but if you want to read them, you can read them, and you can speculate whether he wrote them or she did. Ooh, spooky. (laughs) I have included the Drunk History episode on Edith in the further learning section of my notes, so Alana will share that with y'all on the, on the, the notes, the notes. Um, While no drunk history is completely accurate, I think they did a great job capturing the spirit of Edith, a woman who refused to sit still when she saw her nation in trouble, a first lady who dared to defy the cultural norms of her time. So if anything, it might not be something you should cite in your paper, but to get the general gist of what kind of person Edith was, I think drunk history is a great place to start. And it's hilarious. So uh, there's like a whole thing about cheesy bread. You'll see. Go watch it. I forgot about the cheesy bread. Drunk History is like my favorite show. Drunk History is my comfort show. I am still not over its demise, but this is a really great one. I really, I like all the Drunk Histories, but I do think they do a really good job with this one. Um, But in conclusion, we will never know what actually went on behind closed doors at the Wilson's White House. But we know that Edith did a lot for America. And I think that's pretty cool. I love that wild ride and I would like to extend that roller coaster you just took us on to Dolly Madison land. This was, we were going up the incline and Dolly Madison is just going to plummet us into that great, that drop that makes all the excitement. Mm -hmm. And then you like feel it in your stomach. I'm just kidding. I've never been on a roller coaster. I have motion sickness. (laughs) I can't tell you that when I wrote these notes, they were like five pages, single space. And I dwindled it down for the sake of Lexi. Um, also, I have a special guest, Dolly, Dolly Madison, my plant. She's been with us. She's been sitting next to me. And yes, I name after my plants, after historical characters. Give, give, a, give a description of her appearance for our audio She listeners. is a pothos in a clay pot. Um, she has two hands now, two vines growing out. Look at her go. She has a fun little water butt um, that I need to refill. Okay. Now we're ready for Dolly Payne Todd Madison, wifey of James Madison. So Dolly has been like the focus flower of many DC interactions of mine. And just like in general from like segue tours to comedy shows, 
um, and she is on some like ghost tours. So spooky, spooky. And just being like a first lady, yeah, you'll get your name on like a, all the hosts of DC history and American history that like you will find in our nation's capital. But awkwardly, she is like sometimes referred to as Dorothy or Dorothea. That's like not her name. So I feel like with all the attention she gets in the scope of first lady and like presidential trivia, her name should be correct. Oh, well, um, because I couldn't decide what story I wanted to tell. I'm following like my model for short stories that I did with our authors. So hopping into our first story, she is the reason we have the inaugural ball. So the first one being James when he was elected in 1808. So the ball was in 1809 and it was held at the Robert Long's Hotel in DC. This hotel is a no more hotel, but to be fair, there have been past inaugural, not, not iguana nations. <laughs> there have been past inaugural celebrations, but this was the first time a specific party was dedicated to the occasion and the tradition of calling it a ball and overall making a big deal of swearing in a new president and other representatives. And this new tradition also played into the fact that she was kind of known as like the head of like public events, really into all that and other charity functions. So she kind of like had like a moniker of like the party gal, regardless of it being like for political and like business side, or also just being a good time gal, just wanting to have a way to celebrate. And on display in the Smithsonian's American History Museum, you can see the silk gown she wore. It was like a typical of the late 1810s. And on the satin like open robe part, there's hand embroidery of flowers, butterflies and other like wildlife. And there are a ton of descriptions of her like wearing it and equating her to like royalty, that she seemed just like the highest of royal, a queen, if you will. And again, they had the first time this was a ball and other celebrations for inaugurations were having like the flag presented um, and other ceremonial factors. So this was a spectacle. And lastly, my small note for the a second inaugural ball, because uh, James Madison had two terms, was that Dolly's famous ice cream was served. The second story, flipping our history book to the War of 1812, Dolly, the national hero that we have. So this war was fought between the US and England. Um, and in, I believe like they're allies on either side. That's not the big point here. The big point is when the British troops were invading DC and causing mass destruction in the form of setting the city on fire. Madison and his cabinet flew the coop. However, Dolly during this moment of utter chaos stayed in the White House to make sure that important documents, artifacts were just saved, that like somehow they were secured and brought out. One of them being the portrait of George Washington by Gilbert Stewart. Um, and that was like removed and secured. We actually have a letter that Dolly wrote at three o'clock in the afternoon on August 23rd, which she detailed how bad the situation was, um, how she ordered a frame to be like the frame that was like artwork was in to be broken 
the canvas inside the frames to be rolled up and saved so some people could take it to like a scattering of different places that would keep it safe. And it also noted in this letter that rolling it up would potentially destroy the canvas, but also the fact that the fire could also destroy the canvas. So this was like Dolly's way of like, hey, could work, we're gonna do it. And I think like stuff that they were kind of just trying to store and keep safe even made its way to New York. Now we get into some controversy. Early 20th century historians, and this is still like a topic that's widely discussed amongst American history buffs, say that Jean-Pierre Suzat, I'm definitely mispronouncing that last name, I apologize, had actually directed the servants or slaves of the White House and the Madisons did own slaves. And it was these people who were instructed and physically saved the objects, not necessarily Dolly Madison herself running around the White House, grabbing everything. And post burning of DC, Dolly and her family were temporarily living in what was now called the Dumbarton House. And she was known for continuing the entertaining and keeping everyone's spirits up, but to also show that the US was very strong regardless of what happened at the Capitol. And why do I bring this up? For a ghostly tale, if you will. Dolly apparently haunts different locations of DC. And um, I've linked a Washington Post article, but there's so many different tales out there. Uh, I actually think I heard the first one from like a ghost tour. I was looking up like one of those ghost tours that you can find and do yourself um, when I was first going looking for GW as a potential school. Regardless, the first one from the Washington Post is that she takes care of the gardens at the White House. And during Woodrow Wilson's administration, staff reported, staff reported that they would see her ghost when they were about to move the Rose Garden and that they were like freaked out. And it might've been like her being the force to be like, no, no, leave the Rose Garden there. And that might be the reason why that the, like they attribute like seeing her ghost as to why the administration was like, we're not gonna move the Rose Garden. The second is that she's linked to the Octagon House. And this house has like a very sketchy past for a lot of reasons. This is the house, one of the houses or the house that they went to during War of 1812 to run away from the burning White House. And, you know, everything was being burned down. This house on the corner of 18th and New York had some unexplained occurrences. Three different deaths of women two of whom were the daughter of the guy who first owned it. And one of the deaths was like a reported fight over one of them who wanted to like marry a guy that their father didn't approve of. And she fell down the stairs. I don't know super like for how Dolly uh, plays into it is that she just watches over the house. She didn't die in the house tragically, but that house is apparently very haunted. And that is also on like many different comedy shows is like Dolly uh, haunting different historic houses or different historic places. Well, they did Dolly Madison. Madison, also on Drunk History, they did Dolly Madison saving yes. the portrait of, of George Washington. Did they include, like, it could have been slaves as well? No, they included that now that there there is always a portrait of Dolly Madison hanging across from the portrait of George Washington so that she can, like, watch yeah. over him. Also for the Smithsonian... I believe this is in the show notes, but you can take like a tour, a virtual tour 
of all the dresses and they have like a whole section to dolly of the you find it, you should put it in the notes because it would include all our ladies that's the present time because it's paramount importance that the women and girls of our country be given training so that they may do their share in the war emergency how this training is given and who does it is of great interest to us all Anna Eleanor Roosevelt was born in New York City on October 11th, 1884. She was a Libra. Um, Her husband was an Aquarius, which is cool because those signs are like peak compatibility. Um, But I'm only bringing it up because FDR and I have the same birthday. Also, they were fifth cousins. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Her parents were Anna Hall and Elliot Roosevelt. Do you see where they maybe got Anna Eleanor? I think that's really cool. It could potentially be Anna, but we're going to call them Anna. So for this story, I'm just going to do a couple fun facts and then tell a couple short stories in more detail because, I mean, the same way that Haley just did for Dolly Madison and that she did for Maya Angelou. So big inspo here from Haley, who's amazing, because we could just be here all night talking about Eleanor Roosevelt. That's definitely how Haley felt about Dolly Madison as well. These are just really cool ladies. (laughs) So a couple fun facts. She was orphaned at a very young age. So her uncle, who was, you know, the president, Gave her away at her wedding. Uh, She got married during the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. That feels like a huge flex. I don't really buy into the like giving away at a wedding. But if the president were to give me away, that would be, I would consider it. I would consider it. While first lady, she started her own syndicated newspaper column called My Day, where she just like said her shit every day, uh, which was totally unprecedented in the world of first ladies. She became known as First Lady of the World due to her global activism, even after the death of her husband. On a related note, when she told Harry Truman, who was FDR's vice president, that the president was dead, Truman asked if there was anything he could do for her. And Eleanor replied, quote, is there anything we can do for you? For you are the one in trouble now, end quote. Which brings us to my first story called Bicon. It is extremely likely that Eleanor Roosevelt had an affair with female journalist Lorena Hickok. They probably had to keep their relationship top secret, hushity hush. Lorena probably burned some of their letters and she was definitely edited out of some photographs. I have linked in further reading some excerpts from their letters and just like read them. I really do not think that this is just gals being pals, y'all. This is very romantic to say the least. What do you mean? I say romantic things to you guys. Just kidding. (laughs) Okay, but do you say things like, oh, actually, maybe Haley does, but say things like, I want to hold you in my arms and I wear your ring so I know you love me? Wait, you know what? Haley says it to us because she's the straight one. (laughs) Because she's the straight one. (laughs) I just love you both and I want to give you some part of my love. You do this. We'll take it. But yeah, Eleanor like wore Lorena's ring very cute. Eleanor Roosevelt was also anti-Japanese internment. One of several stains on FDR's presidency is, of course, the Japanese internment camps. And Eleanor was very anti-internment. She didn't really say it in the best way, though. She said the camps were, quote, certainly not luxurious and that they should be closed ASAP to avoid creating, quote, another Indian problem, unquote. Uh, which I have no idea what that means. Uh, and I don't really want to guess. I just know that it made me uncomfortable. <laughs> right sentiment, wrong words. And partially wrong sentiment. Partially wrong sentiment, but 
the general gist is the main point of no Japanese internment camps. That's a good point. Said really badly. In her speech, she basically said that, hey, I get that we're all scared of Japan and Germany and Italy because it's World War II and they're really scary. But, you know, these Japanese Americans are Americans. And, quote, a Japanese American may be no more Japanese than a German American is German or an Italian American is Italian or of any other national background, unquote. That's another thing that I feel like the sentiment is good, but question mark noises and confusion noises. That's how I feel about that. And Eleanor Roosevelt died in 1962 after a lifetime of fighting for civil rights, women's rights, and refugees' rights, especially Jewish refugees fleeing Nazi-occupied Eastern Europe, even though she was definitely anti-Semitic. People are complicated, and I don't really want to go into that anymore. She still did a lot of good for a lot of people, even when she was kind of out of the public eye and didn't really have to anymore. Got the spirit, but not quite there yet. You know what? Gay people can be bad, too. Gay people can be bad, too. You can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and our transcript of this episode will be on ladyhistorypod.tumblr.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Lexi B. Draws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next week on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, these women went undercover in a sense. These are women who posed as men to get the job done. They have a spot in my household. I also have Kamala Harris, which is an aloe plant, um, a coffee bean that was Joe. My snake plant is RBG, because I think Ruth would have been enjoying a snake plant uh, just because it's fun looking. And I think that's just how she would roll. And then this last plant, I just don't know what it is. I actually like haven't named yet. And I think I might do Edith now. She might be Edith.